Uh, this is I, <laughs> definitely my brain is not working right. Um, it has been a long day. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we are coming at you on Tuesday, June 5th, the day following the big announcement that Microsoft is buying GitHub. Woo, I thought you were going to say the day after Monday, June 4th. It is also after Monday, June 4th. And, uh, um... You know, the show is clearly patterning after Acquired. Um, it is a, a San Francisco company and a Seattle company that are uh, um, joining forces. And uh, I, I don't know where I'm going with that. But we sit here in Wave Capital in San Francisco uh, near the, the headquarters of GitHub to, uh, to celebrate this momentum occasion. Indeed, indeed. And uh, this is our second in-person episode in a row uh, we actually recorded what we thought was episode nine last week together in Seattle. We did. And turns out now that that's episode 10. So listeners, you'll have to wait and find out what that could be. What Seattle company might we have covered? <laughs> Tune in next time to find out. All right. Uh, getting into this show. If you're new to the show, you can check out our Slack at acquired.fm. You can also check us out on Apple Podcasts, and we appreciate any love or reviews that you could show there. Uh, Love coming in the form of reviews. For our sponsor this episode, we have ZoomInfo. ZoomInfo is an awesome business and product story that is totally in the acquired vein. Totally. This is an amazing under-the-radar entrepreneurial story. Henry Shuck, the CEO of ZoomInfo, actually founded a predecessor company back in 2007 called Discover Org from his law school apartment. They were dedicated to helping sales professionals find the right contacts at the right accounts so they could stop digging for prospects and focus on closing deals. And then in 2019, Discover Org actually acquired ZoomInfo, another big player in the business data space. Yes, they kept the ZoomInfo name And the combined company has grown way beyond just being a contact data solution. They've actually created this full-stack B2B revenue growth platform on top of it. It is super cool. ZoomInfo actually went public in 2020. They were the first real tech IPO after COVID hit, and they have continued to expand their product suite, and they've just done phenomenally well. It starts with the best business data in the world, whether that's company, contact, or intent data. And this data fuels ZoomInfo's actionable insights, engagement platform, automated workflow capabilities, and so much more. It is the single best way for B2B professionals to find their next customer or close their next deal, streamline their operations, and build the best team possible. And best of all, it is all in one place so your revenue teams can collaborate seamlessly and close deals faster. So if you're in B2B and you're wondering, how can we drive more revenue and who's not? How can we find, acquire, and grow accounts that are looking for our solution right now? How do we make our sales and marketing teams as productive as possible? How do we automate our go-to-market motions to both supercharge our growth and save money? ZoomInfo is simply amazing. They now handle the full revenue pipeline from marketing to sales, even ops, all based on the number one ranked business data. Yes, customers include enterprises like Snowflake, Workday, PayPal, Dropbox, Unilever, and thousands of startup and growth companies, 30,000 customers and counting. 
And here's something really cool. ZoomInfo is making their go-to-market playbook available for anyone to try for free. You want to find out how you can use intent data to target key prospects or how to revive a stalled deal by expanding your buying committee outreach. Head on over to acquire.fm slash ZoomInfo to see the ZoomInfo plays and just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you. Yes, definitely. And our huge thank you to ZoomInfo. All right. David, are we ready? Let's get into it. Uh, so we didn't have a lot of time to research this one, given that it's hot off the press. Yep. But fortunately, I actually had a little bit of a shortcut, which was back when I was a first year, a young whippersnapper, first year in business school, uh, in one of my, uh, one of my classes, I believe it was like high tech business strategy or something like that. Sounds official. <laughs> uh, it sounds very official. Uh, me and myself and two of my classmates did one of our, did a final project for a class on GitHub. So I just so happened to have a 17 page document that we had all put together all about the history and strategy of GitHub. If only every episode's prep was that easy. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's from back in 2013, but, um, as we will see, not that much has changed with GitHub since 2013. Hmm. Hmm. Um, okay. So, uh, with that fun. Oh, and other fun story. Uh, one of my professors at the time, not actually in this class, but one of my professors, uh, at GSB was Peter Levine, the, uh, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz who led GitHub's series a, and, uh, was on the board. Unprecedented freaking hundred million dollar first capital in series a. That's a small series a these <laughs> days. <laughs> at the time it was unprecedented. Also not really a series a as we will get into, but to start, before we get into the history of GitHub, the company, there are a couple things that we want to uh, that we want to cover that are pretty important to understanding the context here. And uh, Ben and I were were laughing before the show. Probably half our audience, the the more technically minded uh, folks in our audience, the engineers and the product managers, are probably going to know all this already. Probably will know it in greater detail than us, and uh, we'll we'll write in and tell us what we got wrong. Yes, as as usual with a technical acquisition, uh, for those that are more technical than us, we apologize for all the things we will surely get wrong. For those that are less technical, uh, bear with us, and uh, I, I hope that we can make something that's um, you know, a, a little in the weeds and a little in the details, uh, digestible, understandable, fun, uh, and something you listen to by choice. Yeah, indeed. But whether it's fun or not, this is really important to understand and why Microsoft paid seven and a half billion dollars for this company. Um, okay. So, so basically they're, they're kind of two concepts, uh, two not concepts, but, um, areas that we, that we want to talk about as background. One is the whole idea of how managing software projects work. Um, and that's this, this, uh, area of software itself called software configuration management or SCM, um, for, uh, as, for as initials, um, or as an acronym. Um, the other area that we want to make sure we talk about is kind of the evolution and dynamics of the open source software ecosystem. Uh, and we will get into both of those. Okay. So first software configuration management, when you're building and managing a software project and a software project could be a small thing that you're building yourself or with a few friends could be an open source project like Linux, or it could be your company's code base for a private, um, a private company. It's 
really hard once more than one person starts working on the project to kind of manage all the changes and contributions and different pieces of development that all the different engineers on the project uh, are making. And I would say even uh, just as one person, as as a, yeah. as a person that used to write PHP scripts and then name them V2 and uh, switched and uh, dot backup, uh, it is uh, excellent to be able to use uh, uh, version control and all elements of software configuration management, even for your own private projects. Even um, for all our investment banker and former investment banker friends, you've certainly lived through you know, uh, merger model V25. Final, final. (laughs) Underscore, final, (laughs) underscore, do not delete, underscore V, you know, DR. (laughs) Uh, This is basically making all of that easy and seamless for way more people than ever work on an Excel model in in cases. Um, So there's basically kind of three main ways to do this. In the very, very old school ways, it was really easy. Everybody just worked on the same machine. <laughs> so there was one file on one machine, and that was the code base. And if you were an engineer working on the code base, you went on that machine or you uh, telexed into that machine and worked on it. Seems simple. Why change? Why change? Well, the computing world evolved a little bit. And what was developed was the client server model. And this was known as the centralized model. Uh, and so in, in, in this case, there would be what was called a shared repository. And that's where the code, all the code lived and all developers, anyone who's working on the code could work on it. But there was one canonical central repository. And so, David, you know, let's say uh, I'm just doing a little weird thing on the side here. I don't really want anyone else to know know about it or be exposed to it or have to pull down all the crazy code that I'm doing for my side thing. You're saying that's not possible in this this client server centralized model. No, Ben. Why would you want to do that? Hmm. Feels like I'm going to spend a lot of time syncing my code base with the centralized server. Or like something existed like an open source project and you wanted to clone it and use some of it and make your own version of it. Uh, would that be easy to do, Ben? Well, it doesn't strike me that once I clone that, it would be easy for me to make a few changes and, and uh, uh, maybe over the course of several months and upload that back up. That, mm, that feels... No. No. That would be tough. So as you can see, this kind of all worked well in the pre-internet days, but um, once the internet comes around and distributed software development becomes more of a thing, especially in the open source community, this becomes a lot harder. So fortunately, in the late 90s, just as the internet and distributed software development, and in particular, the open source movement uh, is becoming a thing, a new model emerges for managing the code base for a project, and that is the distributed model. And that was pioneered by a bunch of folks, but there was a company called BitKeeper, uh, a company and a product called BitKeeper, developed in the late 90s. Um, And it was actually used for the development of Linux, for managing all the development, uh, ongoing development and maintenance of the Linux software kernel. Um, Even though it itself was paid software, it was used in this open source, massive open source project um, for Linux. So so BitKeeper was the first decentralized... Um, uh, was it the precursor to Git? Did they develop Git? No. So, uh, BitKeeper, I don't know if it was the first, but it was one of the first or early, you know, sort of stable products that could be used to do this. And it was a private for-profit company. Uh, and their software was used by lots of other companies. Um, but because 
open source was sort of this crazy nonprofit thing that was emerging and a new way to develop software, uh, pioneered, of course, by Linux and Linus Torvalds. Um, they, BitKeeper actually ended up licensing a free version of their product uh, to, uh, I don't know if it was to the Linux Foundation or to the Apache Foundation or just what, uh, but made it available for open source developers to use that. And that became a way to like massively scale the number of developers all around the world that could mm. work on these projects. Um, so that continues for a couple of years, uh, and all sort of well and good. But then in 2005, BitKeeper, the company actually pulls the free license, uh, that they had been providing to mm, the open source community. <laughs> uh, they, um, uh, yeah, exactly. You get what you pay for. <laughs> and, uh, um, and so this creates a huge kerfuffle in the open source community. Well, of course, as, um, we will get into people have lots of uh, opinions uh, and lots of differing opinions. And, and this leads to two separate projects that are pioneered and, and undertaken really in an amazingly short period of time to replace BitKeeper. Um, and those two projects are uh, first was Mercurial, uh, which I believe has less market share now today, but is still around, is actually used by Facebook. So all of Facebook's code base uh, runs on the Mercurial uh, source control um, system. Mm -hmm. um, and the second, which leads directly to where we are today, is a product called Git. Now, Git is interesting because it is actually developed and implemented in like a week, uh, apparently, by the open source man himself, Linus Torvalds, creator of, of Linux. <laughs> well, if somebody was going to do it in a week, it would be him. It would be him. Uh, and then quickly, uh, he, I don't know that he loses interest, but he hands off the project to other folks to uh, keep implementing and developing. Um, so Git, uh, naturally, because it was developed by Linus, becomes first the uh, source control management uh, system that Linux uses, the Linux kernel uses. Uh, then it starts quickly gaining adoption in the rest of the open source community. Uh, Hadoop moves over to it, the, uh, the Hadoop project, many others. Um, I think Mercurial still lives on. And like we said, Facebook uses it, but Git becomes very popular in a very short period of time. And so is there any sort of graphical user interface to access it at this time? Is there any sort of you know, not centralized, but pseudo centralized place. Like are, are people using SourceForge with Git loaded onto it? Yes. Well, so Git and all this stuff, as we said in the beginning is just software, uh, in and itself is software that manages the version. It doesn't actually host the software, the software, uh, the code, which itself is just files has to actually live somewhere, uh, still on a server or on a distributed set of servers. Um, and so Ben, just like you said, there's still no way to really do this in a, in a nice graphical user interface way. There are, um, there are what's called forges, uh, which are essentially servers that, that host code out there and, and they're used in the open source community. They really should have kept that name. <laughs> they really should have. They really should get forge. <laughs> um, and uh, since so these are companies like like SourceForge, uh, I think a lot of people will know Google actually launches its own version of this called Google, Google code. code. Yep. Um, and they're the most popular places for for the code to actually live. Um, but the problem is there, there's not much more to them beyond a place to live and like a like very standard Wikipedia style web page about the projects. Uh, there's no concept of being able to interact with 
other people who are working on the projects. Uh, it's just hosting the code and then you're using Git or Mercurial to manage all of the changes made to the code. Um, so right around the same time, we're now into like 2006, 2007, 2008, we're in the heyday of on the completely other side of the tech world from all this infrastructure, you know, developer, technical friendly or technically heavy work. Um, you have the consumer web popping up, you have Facebook, you have Twitter, you have LinkedIn, and this whole idea of social networks and the combination of what is possible when you take software and people and communities and you all marry it. And people start thinking about, well, what if there's more of a community type site instead of these forges where developers can interact? Yeah. And that really takes the concept of, you know, people arguing on mailing lists and completely decoupled forums that were, you know, totally different than where the code itself was, um, was maintained and, and move it into one place together. And one of the big, you know, the trope of the time, and it's still a trope a little bit, but like if you were contributing to an open source project, there was likely a flame war. Like there was there, it was political people were, um, you know, grabbing on for dear life to have control over their little corner of the fiefdom. And then the mailing lists would have flamers that went out. And of course, like it's not purely because the, the software made it all better. The, the industry's matured quite a bit, but it is, you know, we, we've, we've moved on from that time, um, at least with a lot of the major open source projects in a lot of ways. Yep. Um, so People are thinking like maybe there's some sort of community where all this can come together off of mailing lists, maybe some sort of hub, you might think. <laughs> uh, and that gets into the founding of GitHub. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch over here now to the canonical founding history in the words of co-founder Tom Preston Warner himself from his own blog, uh, quote, and Tom, Tom was a uh, developer working for a company called PowerSet acquired by Microsoft also, uh, in wow. San Francisco at the time, two time Microsoft acquiree, two time Microsoft acquiree, uh, in his own words, I was sitting alone in a booth at Zeke's sports sports bar and grill on third street in San Francisco. This is in Soma. I wouldn't normally hang out at a sports bar, let alone <laughs> <laughs> love it. This is just like, this episode is going to be filled with, with, uh, just instantly uh, throwing shade on anybody who's like not a, not totally. a proper nerd. So many tropes, um, let alone a sports bar in Soma. But back then, Thursday was I can has Ruby night. <laughs> Wait, like I can has cheeseburger? Like I can has cheeseburger. No way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ruby, of course, referring to Ruby on Rails, the web development language that was starting to take off and was... Um, the development language behind a lot of these social, you know, 2.0 websites. I think Twitter was built in Ruby, right? Yeah. Twitter was originally a, a rails app, um, that like massively, massively didn't scale. And that yep. was why it says Fail whale. the, the front end would always fall over. And I think Alex Payne was brought in as total side tangent, but AL three X on Twitter, Alex Payne was brought in, um, to kind of redo that whole thing in Scala and decouple the, the front end from the back end. Yeah, totally. Oh, what a mess. Facebook originally, of course, being built, not even PHP. in Ruby, but PHP. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think GitHub is still uh, largely Ruby, GitHub itself. Oh, ah, interesting. Yeah, that would make sense. That would make sense. Um, so it's Icon has Ruby night, of course, has been alluded to a reference to the Icon has cheeseburger memes all cats lol cats uh from the seattle company Icon has cheeseburger yep. uh at the time 
and uh, and this is a developer meetup for Ruby on Rails developers in in San Francisco. Uh, so Tom is at the bar, and he's taking a little break from the meetup. He goes, he orders a beer, and he sits down in a booth. And apparently, right at that time, uh, his not even friend, acquaintance, uh, Chris Wanstreth, walks in. And Chris is also a Bay Area Ruby developer at the time. He has his own startup that he's working on. Um, and Tom, for some reason, uh, even, even as he's writing this, he doesn't know why he does it. He just kind of gestures Chris over to the booth and he's like, hey, man, check this out. I've got an idea I'm working on. And the moral here is always be looking for people gesturing to you uh, that could have startup ideas. In sports bars and so on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so Tom says, uh, you know, about a week earlier, uh, he had started on this project that he was calling Grit at the time uh, to uh, basically access dis- these distributed Git repositories uh, uh, and and do so via, um, via a bunch of code that he'd written in Ruby. And he has this idea that he can take this, this code that he's written for accessing these repositories and, and turn it into a website that can act as one of like this kind of idea of social coding that people have been talking about. And apparently... Chris, they, they like barely even know each other. He's like, I'm in. Let's do this. And this is like the... Dr- <laughs> literally, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> this is like literally the dream of of engineers with... Like this thing happens 10,000 times more often than it works. Yes. Like software developers can make anything and what ideas people come up with are generally problems they're experiencing themselves. And so it is like the total dream of, I have an idea that is a tool or a um, platform for other software developers or to fix this problem in software development. And like these businesses can be very hard. There's very few that have made it to, to be 500 million, billion, billion dollar plus companies. Um, and this is like, you know, this is the realization of the, the, the total home run right here. And, and of course there's no better, you know, customer feedback for your, as a developer, for your idea, for a developer tool than other developers who you respect. There you go. Um, there you go. So it was all, it was all magically ordained. Um, so they start working on it on nights and weekends. They both have full-time, full-time jobs. Again, Tom is working for PowerSet, uh, which was a search technology company. Uh, and Chris has his own startup with his co-founder, PJ Hyatt, that they're working on. Um, they get an MVP kind of hacked together. And Chris and PJ start to decide that they're going to start using this um, this interface uh, on top of Git within their own startup. And pretty quickly, it works great. And like everybody who's working there is like, yeah, this is awesome. I mean, the, the whole be your own first customer thing. Exactly. Exactly. So they work on it for a few more months. Uh, January 2008, uh, a couple more months go by. They launch it and they open up. They tell all their friends about, hey, now there's this way. If you're using Git, uh, that we have this cool web interface on top of it. And you can basically interact with the project and understand, see a wiki of everything that's going on, talk to other people who are working on the project, manage it all from there. It starts spreading like wildfire. <laughs> it's one of these things. It's, it's a lot like sort of Uber when it launched or Twitter when it launched, where as soon as, soon as you, you turn the lights on, there's perfect product market fit. Perfect. It was so, uh, the product market fit was so perfect that, and so many people, started using it that 
they actually started becoming really concerned about their own hosting costs because their GitHub is now the forge, the hosting uh, service for all this code. And all these people are now using it for their companies, for open source projects, for everything. And they're like, oh, crap. I understand why it's great. It always seemed ironic to me that we had this big breakthrough in decentralized version control and then GitHub centralized it again. Yeah, totally. I mean, like <laughs> it's not fully centralized in there again. And so there's lots of like, you know, reasons why it's good, but it's, it's still a, it's like a, this is the the like engineering counterpart to the business axiom that there are two ways to you know make money of bundling and unbundling it's like centralizing and decentralizing yeah yep. you know it is funny i thought about that a lot with um um so cloud computing is this uh client server model where if you look back in the 80s if you look back at like dummy terminals and mainframes like nothing lived locally everything lived in the mainframe then cpus got really powerful and like we got good at storing stuff and hard drives and they got really big and then you could buy cheap computers so we didn't do anything in their own you know know. remotely anymore so everybody's got their everybody's processing locally everybody's storing locally and now like we're in this place where if your computer crashes you can likely just go get another you know macbook pro bring it home and within an hour be back up to speed because everything's in some cloud service somewhere yeah. and it's funny how there's this wax and wane of, of centralized decentralized you know client server back to to you know powerful pc back to client server back to client server it's uh it's the never-ending tiktok of the technology cycles it is uh so um <laughs> they're worried about hosting uh all of these centralized decentralized uh forges or this forge that they have now and they're like oh crap we got to build a business model into this uh asap because they had launched it and anybody who was uh who had a git based project um could use it could be open source could be a private company they're like what could we do well what if we just keep it free for open source because remember when bitkeeper uh, which had been this private company was doing distributed version control for for open source, and then they pulled the license and had to make uh, tried to make open source projects pay for Bitkeeper. Everybody defected, uh, and then that led to Git and Mercurial. So obviously they can't do that. But what if we charge companies who are using this for their own private uh, code bases? We'll just charge them, and we'll make it free for open source. It's really brilliant. Like it is the thing that's keeping us growing the ability for public repos that have no permission set on them, that people are doing open source projects being free to access and thus continue to fuel growth. However, monetizing people that want to do things that are counter to growth by locking it down. It's like the perfect place to draw the freemium line. Totally. I, I think that from a lot of the companies that we've examined on this, this show, I'm, um, I think it's really helped me inform um, what makes sense in a freemium model versus what makes sense in a free trial model. And in the freemium model, it's really all about, I mean, the, the, a, a massive component to uh, are you going to build a successful business is are you able to draw the line in the place such that you're both yeah. fueling growth and monetizing exactly in that place when people are finding it so valuable that they'd be willing to pay. And, w- and when people want to do private repos, like that's exactly that place. It's exactly that place. And not only that, they just completely nailed the timing back to our hopefully not too dense and not too poor <laughs> description of the open yeah, source community early. Poor than yeah, dense. more, more, more. <laughs> say, exactly. I, I agree. Please don't judge us harshly. It's been a long day. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, back to the open source community. This is right at the time when open source 
projects and development is just exploding. Like it was like people used to think open source, they used to think Linux and operating systems. Yeah. And value destructive. Yes, and, and value destructive. And interestingly, uh, and, and particularly to foreshadow the Microsoft acquisition, like Microsoft was the one carrying the banner on open source is value destructive. It's a threat to our business model. It's a threat to selling licenses, uh, uh, selling software licenses. It's a threat to every everybody who's trying to create a software development ecosystem and platform. And I mean, people had done okay, like Red Hat figured out a business model around open source, but it was unclear if open source could ever actually be a successful business. Yep. And, and you go from that, again, where it was all centered around operating systems to now you've got programming languages are open source. Ruby's open source. You've got Hadoop, which is open source. You've got data tools. You've got visualization tools. You've got, you know, I don't think like React Native was was around at that point, but like now it is like all of these mobile now development you have frameworks. Hundred thousand yeah. JavaScript frameworks yeah, that are all open exactly. source, so you can pick four of them and use them in some strange concert that the proliferation of open source tools needless to say has its own uh and, and that had a couple there were a couple secondary effects from that um one is that simply there's so many more projects so many more, more people working on it um that just leads to lots of people now using github um period but also it becomes your your sort of your resume, your badge of honor uh, as a software developer. People want to know not where have you worked uh, or what have you worked on there. They want to know what open source projects have you worked on, and can I see your code? Can I see which um, which contributions you have made that have actually become part of the uh, accepted by the community as core part of the project? What's your impact? And that's way more traceable and. Um, open in a way, just like LinkedIn and Facebook uh, in the business world and the social world um, than it ever used to be. Yep. And of course, people don't always have time to be contributing to open source projects when they have day jobs. However, plenty of people start little side projects and weekend things where they're just the only one contributing to a repo. They put it up as a utility for other people to use. It's public, it's searchable. And that can be a resume piece where you show off the quality of your 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 code and, and what your, um, what small problem you were passionate about solving. And that's a thing that I think is looked for much more by protective, uh, prospective hiring managers than um, open source contributions for a lot of employees. Yeah. Well, certainly both are. Uh, and it yeah. depends what you're hiring for. Yeah. Um, but totally changed the way that software development recruiting was done. Completely. Uh, none of that visibility existed at all. I mean, it was like, literally, it was like LinkedIn, uh, which, you know, we'll get to with Microsoft and the acquisitions <laughs> in a little bit. But um, it was like LinkedIn in your resume bef- before then. You know, it was people didn't want to share their resumes and it was weird. Like it was this super private thing. It was like your bank account number. Um, but after LinkedIn, of course you wanted to share your resume and it became the basis by which all recruiting happened. Uh, very similar dynamic in the software world. Yep. Um, so they realize, uh, they come up with this brilliant freemium model. They realize they need to start making money to keep the lights on. Uh, they quickly hack on the site. April, 2008, they launch, paid private repositories. So again, if you want to make it open to the public, which by nature is anything open source or been like you're saying your own side projects that you're just putting out there for anyone to see mm-hmm. your code, uh, it's free. But the minute you want to make it private, you have to pay, uh, GitHub, you have to pay GitHub a certain amount per month, um, to cover that. And once again, it works like wildfire. <laughs> um, shortly thereafter that we had alluded to power set where Tom was working. So 
Chris and PJ quit their, folded their earlier startup, went full-time on GitHub as co-founders. Tom, the third co-founder who originally had the idea, um, he's still working at PowerSet. July 2008, PowerSet gets acquired by Microsoft <laughs> for $100 million. And uh, Microsoft offers Tom a $300,000 retention bonus if he signs on to stay for i believe three years Hmm. and uh tempting tempting but this freemium thing is really kind of taken (laughs) off again (laughs) so tom makes the correct decision does not go work for microsoft uh leaves power set microsoft and goes full-time on github uh and so the three of them are full-time tom is ceo um but it's completely flat they're all equal uh and working uh working on the company and so just like uh in the atlassian episode which we also covered and is also very reminiscent of developer tools and tools for teams and collaborations um they decide that they're going to bootstrap and they're making enough money they don't need to raise venture capital um and, and the system that they come up with is they devise, uh, I wasn't able to find exactly what it is, but an elaborate formula uh, based on how much money they made on the site that month, how much they pay themselves. And like they have to hit certain goals <laughs> and they're basically cliffs and then they increase their salaries by a certain amount. Um, they still haven't hired anybody. It's just the three of them. Um, and that, uh, that goes on. They also decide though that they, um, since they have started the company, they need a logo. Where should they look for a logo? <laughs> uh, stock photos. <laughs> this is, this might be, there, there are a bunch of good <laughs> stories in here. I think this might be the best story of the episode. So they had heard, I'm actually, it's, it's unclear to me if they're friends with the founders of Twitter. Um, they must have been. It was actually still a much smaller place, uh, software development and the startup ecosystem in San Francisco at that time. And and if they were both um, sort of active contributors in the Ruby community, probably. Probably, probably, which is how they knew each other. Um, and so it turns out that the Twitter logo, uh, the bird, um, not the bird you see today, but the original version of the bird was actually an iStock photo by the British graphic designer designer Simon Oxley, who is just very prolific and produced tons of stuff, tons of stock art on iStock photo. Uh, the Twitter founders saw that on there and like, that's the bird we want. And they paid $15 for the original bird. <laughs> and that became the Twitter logo. Yeah, but David, that one couldn't be appropriately described by circles. <laughs> Did you ever see that? So the, the quick aside, the newest, um, and, and really nice, really simple, really beautiful mark for Twitter is, a uh, you know, aspirational sort of upward turned bird. And the, when the day they announced it made a bunch of hay about it, um, they were illustrating how it was sort of perfect in all these ways. And it's because you could sort of use a bunch of circles, use the edges of circles to create the exact shape of the bird. So the bottom curve of it and all the Mm -hmm. feathers. And then it became this big thing that like, people would just go and create any logo by using circles because given an infinite amount of infinite amount of circles and circles of any size, you can kind of like make any shape you want. So it's kind of this like people at first were like, Oh my God, it's all made from circles. And then everyone sort of looked at each other like, wait, 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 wait. It was also like really disorienting because you know, the, the current Twitter bird logo faces, right. But the original one faces yes. less <laughs> disorienting. And I don't think there's a word mark anymore. So there's it's like difficult to write Twitter properly. Like if you go uh-huh. look at Twitter, it doesn't say Twitter and any logo text anywhere on the site. Um, hmm. This well, is not the Twitter episode. But. Total aside. <laughs> we will revisit that in a Twitter episode someday. <laughs> but is helpful background. 
the GitHub founders, they're like, great. Work for Twitter. We're going to go on iStock Photo. We're going to look at, at this dude, Simon's work. He's got a ton of stuff on there. We'll find something great for us. Animal, like bird, sure. What should we find? What, is, what does he have? They're scrolling through. Oh, how about an unholy marriage of a cat and an octopus? Perfect. Nailed it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> and I think it it was not called Octocat yet. No. It also only had five tentacles. It's very confusing. Very, very confusing. Um, no, it was not yet called Octocat. I, I did look up, but I forget what it was. What it was originally called. I think called, it was but... Octopus. Yes, I think Two that was S's. right. Yes, I think it was Octopus or something like that. And um, so they bought it. Uh, I don't know if this is correct, but I what I read was for three dollars. I think that they bought it. Yeah. Um, they really got a deal versus the $15 that Twitter paid. Yeah. It's like just about half the cost of one month of, uh, registration on their site. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a bootstrap startup. Uh, so they buy the octopus rename it, the Octocat, And that is how the Octocat became the logo. And then very quickly official mascot, uh, adopted worldwide by GitHubers and GitHub fans um, around the world. And with that, um, really on the back of the Octocat, <laughs> uh, growth continues to come very quickly. So about a year, we're in early 2009 now. That's, that's a causation correlation. Area, Absolutely. <laughs> I think it was no doubt causation. <laughs> um Early 2009, they announced that they now have over 50,000 public repositories. So these are projects, uh, including open source and personal projects um, that are open to the public that have been created on GitHub. They, they never they never talk about how many private repositories they have. Um, July 2009, they announced they have over 100,000 registered users. Uh, so 100,000 developers, which is a lot like the there are not that many developers uh, in America. So they already have, well, around the world, they're more, but they have pretty high penetration pretty quickly. Um, they have 90,000 unique public repositories. By the next year, they have a million public repositories. Uh, 2011, 2 million public repositories. And when you look at, the, these numbers are a little hard to comprehend uh, here on the radio, but when you look at charts, I mean, either by repo or by um, user growth, it is just at, at any scale that you look at it, just completely geometric or, yeah. or actually I don't have a geometric exponential logarithmic, whatever it is. It's up as it, it is, goes to the right. It is getting upper as it goes righter. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, by the middle of 2011, they have now GitHub is now surpassed. So we're three years into the company. Uh, it has now surpassed SourceForge and Google code as the number one place where projects were, um, open source, uh, and, and any personal public, uh, projects are hosted on the internet. Um, so that was a major, major milestone for the company. Um, then the next year, so they've, they've been bootstrapping the whole time, profitable the whole way, uh, and making money and very nice salaries by, we would assume by the formula that the three founders devised, um, July, 2012, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, comes in and invests a hundred million dollars in the company, the largest check that they've ever written. And by all calculations that anybody can even think to do going back as much history as possible, the largest quote unquote series a ever raised in history. Gotta be. It's gotta be. Now 
it wasn't really a series a because like the company existed they had 100 employees uh it had just been bootstrapped for a long time um but it was their first round of funding it was at a 750 million dollar valuation um incredibly incredibly impressive yeah and from what from what david and i understand from some some primary source research a very very competitive round where andreessen horowitz just decided yeah we're gonna do this and uh nobody is gonna nobody else is gonna do this it's just gonna be us and and it was um uh a great company obviously very hot a great round to do and and obviously andreessen did great in the investment but also not super clear that uh, it warranted that much. I mean, they had grown so much as we alluded to, uh, I wish I had, um, in my old, uh, uh, in my old term paper from GSB, I had the number of, uh, software developers in America. They were like approaching a hundred percent penetration. Um, so it was unclear like how much more, uh, GitHub, GitHub could grow. Well, David, if your entire fun thesis is that software is eating the world, <laughs> you, know, you could imagine there's probably gonna be a lot more software developers. One would imagine and one would be correct. <laughs> um, so January 2013, six months after they raised the Series A, they announced that they have 3 million users and 5 million repositories. Uh, and again, you're wondering about how much headroom is there in the market. By the end of 2013, they have 10 million repositories. So doubling um, the number of users or doubling the number of, of projects hosted on the site uh, publicly, not to mention the private ones and things are going great. Unfortunately, 2014 was not the best year for the company. Um, and let me, I actually, so I pulled up your term paper and looked at it. Um, at the end of 2012, GitHub had almost 2.08 million members compared with the total professional software development per the software developer population of the United States of only 1.3 million. Right. So they had over a hundred percent of the United States software developer population. Right. So presumably it was international, probably, what, yeah. like, you know, half a million from the U.S. and a ton internationally or something, yep. but crazy. Crazy. How much bigger can it get? Um, so as we were alluding to, 2014 was not the best year for the company. Um, Tom Preston Warner, who we uh, had talked about, who originally had the idea for GitHub and was the first CEO um, in a sort of bizarre series of events that it's un- still unclear exactly what happened. Uh, he and his wife, um, were, who did not work at the company were accused of harassment at the company led to an internal investigation and, and ultimately in Tom leaving the company. Um, so since 2014, he is, he's still a founder, but has not been part of the company. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, David and I don't, profess to know anything about what goes on at the company or, um, and, and, you know, by all accounts, it's, it's still kind of unclear, um, what happened there, but, you know, you can kind of read between the lines on, um, you know, super young founding team company growing incredibly fast. Um, you know, a lot of very unorthodox, uh, sort of management principles. They adopted the valve management, uh, style of a completely flat organization. Nobody reported to anyone else. Yeah. Anyone could work on whatever they wanted. Yeah. You could imagine it would be a culture that, that wasn't sort of the tightest run ship. And, um, you know, that, that, uh, I would say we, the, the public never really knows the true story of, of what went, what went down there, but the internal investigation did reveal, um, um, I believe it revealed according to the internal investigation, not specifically harassment, but lots of signs of lapse in judgment, judgment. Yeah. Um, 
anyway, as we've said multiple times on the show, we're not super equipped to prosecute one way or another. And this is a particularly um, tough to parse case. But anyway, it re- results in Tom leaving the company and Chris Wanstroff, the co-founder who walked into the bar, <laughs> becoming the CEO. Um, and he would remain the CEO until uh, yesterday. <laughs> but we will continue on that. Um, the company still keeps growing. In in 2015, Google just gives up <laughs> and Google shuts down Google code, says, <laughs> just go to GitHub. It reminds me of Google Video, except they didn't acquire in this case. Yes, they did not. Microsoft did. Could you imagine if Microsoft had acquired YouTube? That would be a, a what would have happened otherwise. Huh. Anyway. Yeah, Bing Video wouldn't be flourishing, so... <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't have the same sentence. ring to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love Microsoft, but uh, we, we really do. Um, July 2015, uh, things are back on track, going really well. Uh, the company raises another $250 million led by Sequoia uh, at a $2 billion valuation, and they announce that they have 10 million users. Yeah, and it's important to note this is not... It, we have covered uh, times on this show before um, where a company is cash flow positive or profitable um, or sort of the the uh, could be profitable at any moment scenario and they're raising extra cash just to double down on growth or just to have cash reserves in the bank for competition or to go to an IPO or for whatever reason. Um, this is not the case. This is, uh, we are not running a profitable business. We're, we're generating nice revenues and the adoption is crazy and the stickiness is, is huge. Um, but we are, you know, we need this capital in order to continue to operate the business. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, I think it's also a fair question to ask. Um, certainly the, any market size estimate of the number of software developers in the U S or in the world in 2011, 2012, would have massively underestimated the growth. Yep. Certainly. That said, I have a GitHub account. Uh, I have contributed to a few projects. I would in no way consider myself, as is obvious by this episode, a software developer. Um, So there is very much a question of like how much of... I'm sending you a pull request tonight. (laughs) (laughs) You just wait. Oh, no, I'm scared. (laughs) No, I'm real scared. (laughs) Um, So there is some question in there. but yes, uh, as as Ben as as you referred to, you know, over the next few years, um, again the company continues to grow very nicely. Uh, but last end of last summer, August 2017, they make a curious announcement. Um, they announce that they have passed the 200 million dollar annual revenue run rate, mm-hmm. um, which is you know, impressive, uh, but relative to being valued two years before at $2 billion, um, it is lower, uh, than you would expect. Um, and, and the punch of that announcement comes from the fact that, uh, 110 million of that was from their, um, the business line, basically, Hey, we sell to individuals and we sell to businesses kind of like Dropbox in the episode that we covered there. Um, and our, our, um, 
um, our, you know, business division or enterprise division has sort of outpaced the, uh, the consumer adoption. Mm -hmm. So before when we were talking about, Hey, I just want to make this private repo, um, versus, okay, my company has adopted GitHub as the way we develop software. And so I think it was uh, in part to tout, Hey, we actually have a real sort of, uh, enterprise B2B business here Mm -hmm. and that's all ARR. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not just one-off revenue. Yep. Recurring subscription revenue. Um, which is great. The other part of the announcement, though, is that Chris is going to be stepping down as CEO, and they're going to be running a CEO search in the company to bring in a new, um, you know, experienced, uh, not that Chris isn't experienced at this point, but a new, more experienced CEO to run and lead the company. An action jack, if you will. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Um, and then that leads to yesterday. Uh, well, really to over the weekend when the rumors started swirling. Uh, but then the announcement yesterday, which was that they had found the CEO, Nat Friedman, uh, who had been the founder of Xamarin, uh, a developer platform, mobile developer platform, right? Mm-hmm. Cross-platform mobile development mm-hmm. that Microsoft had acquired a few years ago. Uh, he's going to be leaving the Xamarin division within Microsoft to run GitHub and concurrently, Microsoft is buying the company. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's another piece of the announcement, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. We're getting this guy as CEO. Also, he's currently employed. Therefore, we're going to get owned by them. <laughs> um, so a curious uh, a curious case of, of a CEO search. Uh, but an incredible outcome. Seven and a half billion dollars. Uh, is a lot of money. And David and I joke, but um, it, it's certainly not how it went down. It absolutely went down from the the um, GitHub uh, um, investors uh, and and the GitHub board and the GitHub management. Uh, you know, uh, entertaining the sale of the company, uh, hiring investment bankers. I believe Morgan Stanley in this case to to, mm-hmm. to help make it happen to get the best price. Um, to looking around for for counterparties. And then when the transaction, you know, in thinking about how the transaction was going to get done, I'm sure Microsoft thought, gosh, you know, the only way that this is going to succeed is if we really have the right person here at the helm. And then a sort of um, process with the, the, the former Xamarin CEO to... Um, um, to make that happen. But really, interestingly, leading with the leadership announcement in the press release, yep. because they sort of anticipated uh, people are going to freak out about this and they have to have a beloved open source community technology leader at the helm of this thing in order to give us a shot. Yep. Well, and this gets to, we alluded to this earlier in the episode, but uh, GitHub is really the outcome of the rise of the open source community and everything that that's done to transform uh, software development uh, and and huge swaths of the enterprise over the last decade plus. But the historical enemy of that mortal enemy, <laughs> sworn, sworn sworn enemy, has been Microsoft, and it's just such a funny testament to how much the world has changed now that that's not microsoft and now microsoft is buying github yeah so uh story time from me being at microsoft um in one of my first few days as an intern i was specifically warned not to look at anything uh actually first it was not to look at any any patents then it was do not look at any source code that has the gpl v3 license it's sort of the most strict crazy license where you can get in the most trouble if you are a company like Microsoft and the threat. And I, you know, GPL, I, GPL license being the, 
uh, GNU GNU public, public license. This is the 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 core of legally what it means to be open source software. And there's other ones. There's the GPLv2. There's the MIT license. But and caveat: I'm not a lawyer. I haven't quite looked into this. But the the thing always going around whenever you talk to people about this at Microsoft was the fear that if uh, we used a bit of code that was GPLv3 licensed in our software, then we could be forced to open source the whole thing. Wow. Like all of Windows, all of Office. And it was sort of unclear exactly what all of would be, but um, LCA, legal and compliance affairs or something like that, um, made that very clear. And so... uh, And I think, is this part of the the whole philosophy? Because there's so much also like in open source and, and all of technology um of the 60s counterculture you know uh, element embedded in is this part of the the whole copy left idea so there's copyright i'm not sure and then there's the idea of copy left uh which was part of the open source software movement um which is not only is what you're making copy you know the opposite of copyrighted it's that you have the obligation to contribute back back, to contribute back to keep open and anything else you use in conjunction with it to open as well yeah. And so uh, even one step further, uh, I remember at one point I had GitHub open uh, during my my internship <laughs> and uh, got in a little trouble. Um, and it was it's kind of crazy. I mean, it was it was reprimanded by Microsoft for yeah, having yeah. GitHub only, open only eight years ago, eight years ago, something like that. Uh, it, I got in trouble with Microsoft for having GitHub open. <laughs> And like, it seems awesome. absolutely insane to say, but, and, 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 you know, it even seems insane, like two years later to say, cause that was sort of the end of an era toward my end of, uh, my end at Microsoft. Uh, there was a group starting MS open tech that was a, um, partnership between Microsoft It was like a sort of Microsoft half spin out. Um, and then slowly the, the dramatic, uh, adoption of open source software in the company. So being able to, to do Linux on Azure and, um, uh, and to the yeah. point where Microsoft, of course, uh, we we really, in the best interests of everybody, including ourselves, glossed over a lot of the history of version control software and, and software configuration management. But Microsoft has a massive uh, historical um, product uh, that they've sold and made a lot of money in this space called Team Foundation Server. Yep. Uh, and that was based on an old centralized version of, of source control management. But to the point where in, in 2013, they actually added Git support yep. uh, to TFS. Yep. And even today, they have uh, another thing that is currently operating that, you know, many people outside and inside the company are sort of wondering about called Visual Studio Team Services. Um, they cut, they shut down CodePlex about a year ago, and or maybe six months ago. And, you know, the, the company has this incredible developer division or group of people that produce software to uh, enable developers throughout the world. And a big part of that is things that looked like GitHub in different ways over the years. And so historically, they've competed with it. They're currently sort of competing with it. Mm. Um, there's definitely a, uh, um, you know, this, it's not like Microsoft hasn't thought about this problem. Yeah. Well, it'll be what will be interesting well, uh, flash forward here to, to grading. I don't even know how we're going to put a grade on this, but um, given it happened yesterday, but um, will Microsoft keep those or will they, you know, go all in on GitHub? Like yeah. what's what happens to the quote unquote Google video version of everything, you know, that's you know, as opposed to the YouTube. Here? Yeah. So the stated plan is keep it and it serves a different purpose and it's for different customers, blah, blah, blah. Uh, 
you know, we, David and I reached out to sort of several different birdies in preparation of this episode. And one, uh, one source in the company said that they're, uh, uh, they felt like, um, it's, it's kind of only a matter of time until some executive gets upset and looks and says, how can we have two of these things? And then you have a, another Skype link merger. Um, this is a different Microsoft. Uh, I don't think that will happen. I think this will look a lot more like, like LinkedIn, but, um, you know, LinkedIn was a business that was doing really great on its own and didn't compete with any internal Microsoft products. So, uh, there's, uh, that one's harder to screw up. Yep. Yep. Well, on that note, should we move into acquisition category? We should. We should. Um, I invented a new one for this because... Whoa. Innovation. I can't Are play Are you going to open rules. source your invention? <laughs> uh, it depends. Is, the, uh, is, is, is our structure uh, uh, following a copyleft license? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm going to contribute back to our shared Google Doc. Um, so I initially... Uh, so for new listeners of the show, we have acquisition category, which is people, technology, product, business line, asset. We recently and somehow only recently added consolidation or other, which is uh, the part where that gives David and I license to do whatever we want because we are the hosts. Um, I initially said product uh, and not business line, because if you look back at the that stat of $200 million in revenue, um, they, I don't believe, were profitable. If you uh, take another uh, stare at that from the previous year, um, the run rate in 2016 was that they did $140 million of revenue and generated an $88 million loss. I don't think they had reversed that uh, in the in the next year, probably not in the next two years either. Um, but they could be closer. Um, as is, if, if, if it was a $200 million revenue business, it would be a 38 X revenue multiple purchase, uh, for a probably unprofitable business. So I shied away from saying, uh, from saying business line, but as I thought about it more, I think product is right. Um, Mm -hmm. because they're gonna, they're going to sell this product through their sale, sales channels to additional enterprise customers because Satya Nadella said that one of the stated reasons is to accelerate the adoption of GitHub in the enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and they believe that they can do that. And I'm sure they can. They have the best or one of the best sales forces in the world. But I think there's another thing here that's sort of ecosystem. Hmm. And that's hmm. that Interesting. Microsoft was missing out on this ecosystem because, and particularly the developer ecosystem, because uh, Windows isn't important anymore. And that's a ridiculous hyperbole statement. Windows is very important. But without the uh, growing consumer base with the sort of uh, enterprise shift to be more open to other things, they've sort of lost the ability to uh, coerce developers by just saying, uh, everybody's on Windows, so I'm pretty sure you're going to develop for Windows. Mm-hmm. So it's a, way, uh, it's, it's a way to sort of get the ecosystem of developers um, to sort of continue to be a friend of Microsoft. Mm. And can, yeah, so this is didn't so Ben Thompson's take on this was similar to this, right? Yeah, he described yeah. it as having the leverage to be able yeah. to. Yep, yep. Uh, ben Thompson, of course, of Stratechery, uh, which we're great admirers of here here on Acquired. Um, yeah, it's okay. Interesting. I I can buy that. It's like the equivalent of like strategic reasons. I'm doing that air quotes here. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Okay. So I had product uh i went through the same line of thinking about like business line like linkedin business line i don't remember what we said linkedin was but i'm uh, i don't know how we wouldn't have called it a business line um 
But then you read the press release and it's like, you know, Nat Friedman, founder of Xamarin, will report to Microsoft's cloud and AI division chief, Scott Guthrie. It's within a business line. Like, yeah, of course, like this is, makes sense as a product. But I see what you're saying. Like, yes, it's a product, but they didn't buy this for the product. Um, they bought it for mm-hmm. the strategic place that GitHub has in the developer ecosystem. And particularly as the ecosystem of software developers and what a software developer is continues to grow and expand, um, you know, in the coming years. Yeah. And another way to put it is they bought a customer base Mm -hmm. and, and obviously they're going to sell this product to additional customer base, but this customer base is super sticky to this product and there's tremendous network effects within this product. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think they bought a customer base and they bought that customer base for years to come. It almost recalls a another uh, famous saying within uh, Microsoft, or, or from one particular man who's no longer at Microsoft, who we also did an episode on. Developers, developers, <laughs> developers, 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 developers. Uh, you've honed that well. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done it before. Oh wow! <laughs> You're a natural. Oh, it only took us how many episodes to to do to that get live there. on the air? I think when someday in the distant future, when Satya Nadella is ready to retire, I think we, we've got a good candidate for next Microsoft CEO <laughs> here on Acquire. A, a return to the honey pouring developers uh, <laughs> lifestyle. We got uh, Bomber on at some point. We'll redo the Clippers uh, and have him on. Yes. We definitely have to have Bomber on for the Clippers. Not for anything. For, for what it's worth, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of post-Microsoft Bomber. I think he's just huge fan. killing yeah. it. USA Facts is an awesome project. He's teaching at Stanford GSB. I there don't know if go. he still is, but he was for a while. There you go. Uh, can't knock that. Okay, what would have happened otherwise? I think the specific question—it's—it's it's clear. I mean, we yeah, we joked about it a little bit on you know in the history and facts, but like w- when an announcement comes out, like uh, we just crossed two hundred million in revenue, and we're starting a CEO search. Like yeah, you're definitely looking—you know—you're going to be entertaining acquisition offers, right? Um, so I think the question is, who else could was in the mix? Uh, for yeah. buying this here and every listener um or lots of listeners i'm, I'm sure you're also thinking google like google's of google course. has to have have um uh, reports are that they didn't formally but informally sort of entertain does this make sense for us and and google was one of the main competitors of, of github of course with google code and they just waved the white flag you know three years ago and said you won we're, we're done yeah i think so going back to the point from stratechery Ben Thompson had a really interesting point that is that if someone like Google had bought GitHub, there would be enormous temptation to leverage it to funnel developers at your product. And the great thing about GitHub is that it's Switzerland. Like it works Mm -hmm. for all these things. It gets to be a horizontal. And I I think Ben is a a little bit uh, insulting Microsoft and saying like they don't have a platform to funnel these developers to. And and by product, you mean uh, GCE, Google Cloud Engine? Google Cloud Engine, Android, um, I don't know, probably not Chrome or Chromebook developers, but you know, there's more uh, sort of thriving developer ecosystems such that if they bought it, there's an open question of do they prioritize 
their own platforms on that mm-hmm. and use this horizontal thing to feed the vertical. Certainly at least Google Cloud Engine. I mean, they're locked in a war with AWS, yeah. trying everything they can to get market share. Like if you've got all the developers in the world, you know, pretty much more than 100% of the developers in the world, if you include me, um, on a on GitHub as like their primary user interface for their work, uh, you could probably think of some bundling strategy to yeah and i was wondering is microsoft going to do that too with azure like is there going to be some like ease ease of deployment to azure you can deploy to anywhere but like we made this extra easy button i don't know Hmm. yeah it's interesting this isn't quite what happened what would have happened otherwise but i asked a um another super sharp cto friend uh to to for his thoughts and um he mentioned that that uh, it's great for consumers or for developers. Microsoft's amazing at security and scale, um, but they could try to change Git upstream to add in enterprise features so that it's uh, Git and oh, then Git therefore itself, the GitHub. open source project of Git. Exactly. Oh, Maybe more suitable for the customers that Microsoft has in their sort of uh, sales channel, but mm. uh, GitHub isn't a perfect fit for right now. And uh, after digging into it with them a little bit, uh, Git uses the GPLv2 license, which is copyleft. And so if Microsoft decided to change anything in Git specifically for GitHub without going to um, sort of Git as a broad community and getting it uh, getting it approved by by Git everywhere, regardless of GitHub, um, then they would have to open source whatever changes they made to their fork of Git used in GitHub mm-hmm. to to um, improve the enterprise functionality. So I think what what Microsoft may do is try and uh, get that support added to GitHub, and then it would come downstream to them. Uh, I'm sorry, to Git come downstream to them for GitHub, um, mm-hmm. and they. I don't know how this works, but maybe have sort of more leverage and lobbying power in doing that to make it more of a product that they can they can push through their channel. But I don't know. What does Linus Torvalds think about <laughs> all this? Is my question. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Hopefully, that guy goes on a podcast. Ugh. Acquired uh, follow up. <laughs> so, so another really interesting point, um, and this was on the Motley Fool podcast. Very interesting that this was an all stock acquisition. Very interesting. So Microsoft... It's not is, like Microsoft couldn't afford the cash. No, Microsoft has $43 billion in net cash right now. And so there's a really strange thing that's going on that's Microsoft has authorization to do $30 billion in buybacks, right, and they're in right. the middle of a buyback program the same way that Apple is, which is basically saying, hey, we think our stock is really cheap right now. Like... We're going to pick it up on the cheap. We got some cash. We like holding our stock. We it sh- It's show of good faith for the company for the future. If you think it's that... Not hold this dice that they buy the stock and retire it, so they reduce the number of shares outstanding, so right. everybody's value goes up. Right. They... Uh, Anti-dilution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but then they go and they buy a company in all stock, which if you have the option to buy in cash and you think your stock is going to appreciate and you think it's undervalued and you're doing this buyback... It's the opposite. So is it like yeah. somehow hedging <laughs> against their buyback strategy? Is the signal that they actually think their stock is overvalued and so they want to buy? In, uh, it's a good question. The The other thing that the, the host of that show postulated, which I thought was interesting, is maybe they're going to do something else with the cash and that maybe there's another acquisition coming that is going to be and require more cash. I don't know if we can read that much into it, but I thought that was it interesting. It just seems like Microsoft has so much cash. Yeah. Uh, 
interesting to speculate why they did this in stock. Yeah. Which we should also say the uh, uh, founders of GitHub are now the largest shareholders in Microsoft other than Bill Gates. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier. So this must mean that Bomber has liquidated a lot of most of his stock at this point. I, I guess so. So here's here's the here's the quote from uh, from Bloomberg. The um, each of the three co-founders would have 0.16% of Microsoft from this because the, the acquisition uh, was about 1% of their market cap. Um, and so that's about 10 times more than Satya Nadella. Wow. 14 times more than President Brad Smith. And among wow. insiders, only co-founder Bill Gates, 1.34% would exceed theirs. So wow. I guess the moral of the story more than is Satya Nadella. Each of the GitHub co-founders now owns more of Microsoft than Satya Nadella. Yes, each of them. Wow. Yep. And so the moral here, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of morals, but uh, late capital raises after bootstrapping. So super low dilution. They did that 100 on 750 raise. Um, and then that 2.5 on two, I mean, yep. you're just taking very little dilution there. So late capital raises after bootstrapping plus few capital raises plus an all stock acquisition equals you're one of the biggest shareholders of one of the biggest publicly traded companies in the world. It's funny. I actually have the opposite takeaway from that, which is that it's very nice to have a liquid public stock where if you are an employee or a founder of a company, <laughs> you can actually get liquidity unlike the world in which we live in San Francisco in 2018. <laughs> so you're saying these guys could probably buy some, like a house? Yeah, a house. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, they could probably buy a shack here in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow, cool. Okay, so uh, any any other points on that? Like what, uh, so let's say they don't get acquired. Can this company go public? Like, do they end up doing like a Dara situation and bringing in a great yeah, stable maybe. CEO and trying it's to... a little bit like I, I, in preparation for this episode, I went back, I re-listened to our episode on Atlassian, which we haven't talked about as much, but it's been a long day. Yeah. <laughs> um, they compete. Well, we're going to leave it at that. Um, in the Atlassian episode, we, we were grading their IPO and, uh, and I was like, this is an A it's great. It was completely uncontroversial. This is exactly what you want. Like the narrative was super clear. Uh, and you were like, yeah, but I like the cowboy, like the James Bond style, you know, you, you're, you're, you're driving off, you know, towards a cliff at full speed, you pull the e-brake and turn around. <laughs> I think that's what would have had to have happened with, with GitHub here to ultimately go public. I mean, they announced that the CEO was leaving. Yeah. Um, they've had a history of, you know, management turnover mm -hmm. um there clearly was a lot of company building work left to be done here um at the company to get it to a point where it could go public um not that it couldn't have been done it certainly could have been um but this is feels like a great outcome yeah so interestingly maybe if if um if the assertion there is that there's a lot of company building still to be done Maybe there is going to be a lot more integration with core Microsoft than LinkedIn mm -hmm. had. Like LinkedIn was yeah, a standalone was public, a stand -alone company, public company, with, like, all the executive team in place. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Weiner's still there, you know, doing great. Like, mm -hmm. um, yeah, very different situation. Hmm. Well, I think let's do tech themes, and then I want to hear predictions on what they will do with it. And I and I've got a couple also. <laughs> All right. Um, 
tech themes. Uh, do you want to go first on tech themes? Yeah, I think we've mostly talked about them. Microsoft's monumental reversal of philosophy on open source was a big one. Um, uh, point of integration is a big one. And this is getting back to that, that Stratechery comment from earlier, um, sort of about ecosystem, linchpin, bundling, point of integration. Like my, Microsoft used to have so much leverage in saying, you are a developer, you want to reach customers, Windows is the way. And then they would monetize by selling Windows licenses and they would monetize by other platform features of, of Windows and selling Office on Windows and things like that. Um, without that enduring linchpin, um, you know, you have to take other measures to get people. If, if developers are a core, um, a core element of your ecosystem, you have to take great measures to get those, those, uh, developers since you don't have, um, the leverage of the platform that they need to develop for anymore. Now, the question still remains, how do you monetize that developer? Like, why is it important to get that developer if mm-hmm. they're not going to build software that will go to 2 billion people that you will make a ton of money off the license of each of those 2 billion people that are using it? Um, because seven bucks a month, uh, or even the $2,500 a month for 10 seat enterprise license of GitHub Mm -hmm. is not nearly as good of a business as selling windows. So, um, if you're not making um, enough money off the developer directly, how do you end up monetizing the software they create? So that's my sort of big question on the episode, but, um, yeah, that's a, a, a total key theme for me is, um, using leverage of having users in order to get developers on your platform to, um, to be sticky and come and, and develop. And when you don't have that doing things like this. Yep. I think we've hit everything. The, the only thing I just want to highlight again, um, that I actually hadn't quite thought about till, till you brought it up earlier in the episode. So I'll bring it up again is, um, the power of freemium models if and only if you'd get the line you know exactly right and the incentives align mm. between growth uh and usage and um a customization of your target market to your platform uh with a very um uh very easy to understand and um aligned incentive way to monetize around that um and GitHub just nailed it out of the gate. Might be, I mean, uh, I'm having a hard time thinking off the top of my head. Certainly, you know, top three, if not best freemium mm. model ever devised. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, like ones that are time bounded are weird. Ones that are usage bounded are super weird because it's like, oh, it's free to use until like Dropbox until you hit a certain amount of space. Well, that incentivizes you to just like delete stuff when you mm-hmm. get close to your cap. Um, like this, it's just really hard to nail this, but like I've never seen anything that I, I, that I can think of that nails it so well. Yeah, my general rule of thumb that we sort of use at PSL when we're coming up with what's the right sort of pricing model for things in terms of thinking about pricing and packaging is if it requires network effects, it should be freemium. If it's a utility for you personally, it can be time-bound trials. Mm -hmm. And GitHub sort of took the best of both worlds. So to Mm -hmm. your point of being one of the best of all time, it's like up there with Spotify in in placing the line exactly in the right place to to convert people. Mm -hmm. But even Spotify, I would say, like it's still... Like the network effect isn't really important in Spotify. like uh, Because the little social sidebar thing got them off the ground, but it's not that important anymore. That was a distribution hack. Right, right. So this notion of like 
by me using the free version of Spotify, does it make Spotify better for everyone else? No, not really. By me using GitHub for free, does it make GitHub better for everyone else? Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. That's what I got. Um, <laughs> great. How do you want to approach this? <laughs> oh, man. Here. Okay, well, let's first talk about what we think they're going to do with it. I'm, 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 I, there's two things that I think they could do and I'm so hand wavy. Like I'll, I'll say there's three. I've mentioned the one about, um, pushing GitHub into the enterprise. So maybe by opening up the, um, Microsoft sales channel and recommending this to all the Microsoft, uh, customers that are developing on any part of the Microsoft stack, um, which of course may com- compete with visual VS, uh, VSTS or whatever that is. Whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you could, you could start turning this into a profitable business line. It doesn't feel like that's going to make a ton of money. Um, probably not enough to earn back seven and, and a half bees bees anytime soon. Yeah. Um, I think they will use it to leverage people onto Azure I don't know how, and I don't know how they'll strike the right balance of not being too heavy handed with that. Their version of what Google would have done with Google yep. cloud engine. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, and my left field one is since GitHub, it serves many other purposes, but it's, is sort of LinkedIn for developers doing some kind of LinkedIn integration or some kind of mm-hmm. hybrid product. Um, could maybe see that uh it's pretty left field though and i have a feeling uh they're not going to risk the continued success of the linkedin uh, acquisition without integration by starting Mm -hmm. to integrate them with this this acquisition so i don't know how they'll play together yet but i the the clear takeaway for me is it's it's the clear takeaway is it's not clear yet, um, how they'll ever make back this, this purchase price Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, maybe Azure. Interesting. I, yeah, I, I don't have a ton of thoughts other than the thoughts I had were all in that last third bucket that you were talking about on Mm. the recruiting side, because it really has, I mean, GitHub is, is the main, you know, resume for software developers now. Um, and it's kind of like, it's kind of like Microsoft is like a VC that has an investment thesis around like modern, you know, what is the modern day resume in particular industries? It does cause, here's this kind of actually an interesting thing. This might be what they, nobody's said this, but like it costs $30,000 to recruit an engineer. Well, okay. So this is where I was going to go. With it's, this. it's the most expensive position to recruit. Yep. And there's the least data on LinkedIn about the most valuable position to recruit. Absolutely. That's where I was going with this. Uh, so it's actually like two things. Um, yeah, like that's, there's a big market there. Like however big the market is for GitHub services, which is big for sure. Um, the market for recruiting engineers is at least as big. Um, uh, you know, what's the, so what's the enterprise version of GitHub? You're paying effectively $250 per seat per year, right? Yep. But it costs $30,000 to recruit <laughs> an engineer who's going to stay at your company for somewhere between one and X years, yeah, you know, it's a few certainly zeros. not enough, way more in the upfront recruitment fees than however much you're going to pay for a GitHub seat for. Yeah. It's kind of interesting over the, say they, they're there for three years. It's $750 versus 30,000. 
that's a big delta hmm. um and maybe there's also a piece of like you know who just like any other company in technology is locked in talent wars for recruiting engineers microsoft wow did they spend seven and a half billion dollars just to uh peek under the hood and and see what we've been working repos? hard here to acquire these delusional thoughts are flying yeah, around what is the what's the I, presumably the license doesn't let you do this and maybe there's even a gdpr thing around this but like imagine you're a rock star developer at apple and microsoft now has I mean, actually, they have access to these code bases, which I'm sure is completely off limits. But like, what signal could they mine about you? Or even like, you don't even have to go that far. Just like, it's funny, we've been talking about for for lots of reasons, uh, Ben and me and, uh, you know, us at Wave, like perceptions of Microsoft. uh, And certainly, you know, vastly improved since Satya Nadella Nadella became CEO. However, still in the Valley, like, and I know, like, having lived in both worlds in Seattle and the Valley, like... I view Microsoft very differently than I think a lot of people in the Valley do. Like to a lot of people here, Microsoft is still Microsoft, but Microsoft now owns LinkedIn, now owns GitHub. They almost certainly are going to brand linked, uh, uh, GitHub just so that every single page view of an engineer everywhere, seeing them every day gets a flash of the Microsoft logo as a soft recruit. Yeah. I mean, they, they have to, I mean, GitHub beloved, uh, by engineers either they have to or that would be like disney slapping <laughs> the uh walt disney castle at the beginning of star wars either they have to yeah. or it's completely <laughs> off limits and i can't decide which one yeah i don't know either so david we're dragging out this episode length because neither of us want to answer the hard question what would you grade this acquisition <laughs> i've been trying to avoid this for like <laughs> an hour plus at this point um i i don't feel good about it I'll just, no, I'll just whatever they, like, okay yeah whatever uh, so i think the question facing us is like what do we think like you know fast forward five years how are we gonna look back on this so the reason i don't feel good about it is because it's so much cash for a money losing thing that doesn't actually have that much revenue um so then it's clearly not a business line that never will be a business line to microsoft it's it's a strategic thing um and the point i was gonna make when I was looking at it more as a business line was at what price would I like this deal? Is mm-hmm. it a billion dollars? Is it $2 billion? Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's a strategic thing and I don't quite understand exactly how it fits in yet, if it's worth two, surely it's worth seven and a half. <laughs> uh, there's this great, great quote. We do need to do a Twitter episode someday, yeah. uh, but there's a legend in lore, um, that, uh, Facebook tried to buy Twitter, uh, for, I think, uh, I think something like $500 million or a billion dollars. It's publicly reported, whatever it was at some point early in the, in the life cycle. And, uh, I, I believe it was Ev Williams after the meeting where they talked price is like, eh, you know, if we're worth a billion dollars, we're worth 10. <laughs> uh, that's that's the and they, and they were the equivalent and they were uh more than that as a matter of fact um okay yeah for me i oh so you what's your grade i i hate this it's super high variance but i'm gonna go c plus okay um and hope satya makes me look like an idiot in a couple of years great great i actually think the most likely path here uh I hope this isn't a cop out, but I don't think so. 
is it just lands somewhere in between you know i mean like microsoft's a huge company lots of divisions like if this were linkedin like clearly it's going to be standalone like you know a little more but like there's some high degree of difficulty here but microsoft's like you know satya gets it like all this stuff but it's just going to be hard to really pull this off um so i think it probably ends up somewhere in the muddy middle i'm gonna give it a b the muddy middle b yeah yeah all right fair carve-outs carve-outs mine is uh from chris dixon great blog post called the idea maze i'm sure many of you have already read it uh it's been floating around the web and i'm a little late to the party here but it is uh it's a really great read it's short um and it's a lot about basically teasing out the there's a phrase that floats around that's it's not about the idea it's about execution and ideas are worthless and blah blah blah. and he really teases out like ideas aren't worthless we just refer to the idea as like your original two-minute pitch and a company is actually a series of ideas and execution is really a bunch of ideas and so to the extent that uh ideas matter or to the extent the execution matters then there's a bunch of ideas along the way that matter. And it's a really great mm-hmm. blog post about sort of the things you realize while you're executing, reasons to get out into, into market, ways that you can sort of learn faster to make better decisions um, and to uh, to basically be a, be an informed, continuous idea person as you operate your business. And so highly recommend that. Nice. Mine, um, related to that blog post that went around the internet, the interwebs, uh, about a week ago, uh, Eugene Way, uh, former Amazon employee and and part of the original team at Hulu, um, wrote a great blog post called "Invisible Asthmatotes" about um, his time at Amazon and there in the relatively early days. Uh, I think just after going public days, uh, when they started thinking about the business in terms of what are the what are the you know, ceilings to growth and market size that we're going to bump him to. How do we address those in the product? And then how do we start adding more? Um, really cool, interesting, unique take on thinking about strategy and tech that I hadn't thought about before. Um, highly recommend if you haven't read it already, which I assume many of you already have well worth doing. Well, a huge thank you to our sponsor for this episode, zoom info. If your company wants to supercharge its ability to find, acquire, and grow customers while also becoming more efficient, it is a no-brainer to start using ZoomInfo. And now they're making their automated go-to-market playbook available for free for anyone to try. Head on over to acquired.fm slash ZoomInfo to see this go-to-market playbook. And when you get in touch, just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you. Thanks, ZoomInfo. Well... That's it, kids. If you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. If you feel so inclined, we would love a comment on Apple Podcasts. Um, feel free to share with your friends. Um, tweet. I hear that's doing well. Twitter's back in the uh, S&P 500. Yeah. We're bl- Acquired is blowing up on Twitter, by the way. We got like 50 new followers last weekend. You could be that 51st. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great night. <laughs>